You're listening to the Gospel of Mark, a series preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. So if you want to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, one great truism in life is that in order for things to change, things have to change. Obvious statement, kind of goes without saying, if you want anything to change, well, it's going to have to start with change. So it should not surprise us that at times in our lives, God will throw us curveballs that knock us off the well-worn path we're traveling to kind of steer us into a different direction or to, to just change it up a little bit or to cause us to get off of this kind of zombie path we're following and, and make us look to him and trust him in a new way, in a different way, in a way we haven't before. Um, sometimes it's things that happen in our lives that we didn't expect. Sometimes it's health. Even, even a health scare can do this to us where we're, we're kind of in the zone and we're going through our day-to-day lives and all of a sudden what we thought was certain and secure is gone. Sometimes it's a job, maybe the loss of a job or the opportunity for a different job. You know, you just have this normal routine in your life and that's completely thrown off when you lose the job that you've had for a long time or when you move somewhere for a different job. Sometimes it's a a relationship that is broken or maybe a new relationship that's begun. The loss of anything can cause us to be thrown off a little bit. Suffering of any kind can prompt a change in our life, and even successes can do this to us. I sometimes think about life as being on this roller coaster, right? But it's not this roller coaster where you get to like look and you're you're going, you know, twists and turns all the time. Sometimes the roller coaster feels like that very start of the coaster. Do you know what I'm talking about? When you're on the coaster you're sitting in your seat, you're buckled in, you know that there's crazy things ahead, but right now all you're doing is clicking along. Like you move forward a little bit and it clicks. It's, it's like they took a train and put it in slow motion. Click, click, click. Then you start going up and it keeps clicking. Now imagine what it would be like if you were going up for days, for weeks, maybe even for months and years. You'd begin to believe that all this coaster ever does is click as you ascend. And life comes, honestly, it sometimes feels that way. It's the same pattern. It's the same things happening and the same people and the same services and the same everything. And we're just clicking away thinking that there's never any top. What happens when there's silence and the clicking stops? And you look around and you realize that the next, you start to, you start to scream. <laughs> That's what happens. You realize that the next 10 meters ahead, it's not like what's been in your past. That there's a huge change coming. But oftentimes what God does in our lives is he will cause or prompt or allow some kind of disaster, difficulty, tragedy, or success in our life that will take us from the course that we're plodding along and force us to change in some way. Change in our circumstances is usually the catalyst for change within. It forces us to grow. It forces us to be stretched. 
And so as we look at Mark chapter 5, I want you to realize that this is a story of God forcing a man to get out of his everyday routine. That this man feels like he's about to lose something that is incredibly precious to him. And so it's a bad thing. I mean, when he looks at his circumstance around, there's only tragedy, there's only sadness, there's only despair. And yet God is using this circumstance to point him toward Christ, to draw him to Christ, to realize that a change was necessary. The scary thing about it is, I think a lot of us are going through this life without, you know, these, these things that force us to change. And we just, we, we keep on the same path, never becoming the person God wants us to be because we're not growing. We're not being stretched. We're not being pushed. We're not being forced to change. A, a lot of times it's suffering that reveals what's really been going on in our heart. And so here, this man is forced to confront his greatest fear. In Mark chapter 4, you'll remember that the disciples just had their near-death experience. They were on the lake, the boat was sinking, they were sure this was it, and so they wake up Jesus, and they don't even say, Jesus, please save us, they say, Jesus, don't you care that we're, we're dying, right? I mean, it's, it's a given, we're going to die, we just want you to care a little bit that this is happening. And Jesus calms the storm, he rebukes the wind and the waves, and immediately the wind and the waves stop, and now their fear is transferred from the storm to the one who had power over the storm. What kind of Man is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him. They ask that question, and it seems like Mark takes the next chapter, the next three stories, a trilogy of miracles, to answer the question. And so, after a brief day trip to Gentile territory to free the man that was possessed by a legion of demons... Jesus now travels back over the Sea of Galilee, back into Jewish territory. And it, we're going to begin reading in verse 21. Mark chapter 5, verse 21 says, And when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. Behold, there came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet. And he besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and many people followed him and thronged him. We were introduced a couple weeks ago to this man named Jairus. This man who is the ruler of the synagogue. He stands in stark contrast to the first man in Mark chapter 5, the man who was a Gentile possessed by a legion of demons. He also stands in contrast to the woman that we're about to meet. The woman who is a Jewish woman, but she's unclean. She's been unclean for 12 years. She's now lost everything. She is an outcast of society. So yes, she has religion, but she's thought of as impure and unclean and, and not like just an untouchable person. Here we have a man who's different. He's the ruler of the synagogue. He's important. He has status. He's somebody who's respected in the community. He's probably middle class. He obviously has an intact family whom he loves dearly. 
And so he is the guy that you think, they've got it all together. If anybody doesn't need Jesus, like clearly she needs Jesus, and that, that guy that was possessed by the demons, he's in rough shape, okay, I'll give it to you. He needs Jesus. This guy. Why this guy? What does he need? And sadly, he might have never recognized his need of Christ if it wasn't for this horrible circumstance he now finds himself in. His daughter lies at the point of death. Any father in this room would understand the thought of losing your baby girl, the thought of losing your 12-year-old daughter, that's a terrifying thought. I mean, there aren't, there aren't many worse thoughts. There aren't many things you could possibly go through as a father worse than seeing your daughter sick. It's worse and worse to the point where you know she's not going to make it. And you stand there with nothing you can do. No ability to help her. Like, you're completely helpless. And you'd love to take the sickness on yourself, but you can't. And so this man is at the end of his rope. He's got nothing else he can do. And so he runs to Christ. And he falls at his feet. And he begs him, Christ, my, my daughter is at the point of death. Please come. Put your hands on her. I know that if you do, she will be healed and she will live. So he has incredible faith. The next few verses tell us the story of the woman. And it's, it's an interesting reminder here that we're in the middle of dealing with this important guy and this desperate situation, and Jesus pauses to deal with this woman. And her situation, to be honest, it's not as time-sensitive. It's not as desperate. I mean, it's awful. It's, it's terrible. She's been going through this for so long, but it's been 12 years. And yet Jesus shows us that he always has time for the outcast. And he stops and he helps this woman who's been suffering with the issue of blood for 12 years. Look at verse 35 of Mark chapter 5. While he yet spake. He has just said to this woman with the issue of blood, Daughter, thy faith has made you whole. Go in peace and be whole. So those are the words that are coming out of his mouth. He's healing this woman. And as he says those words, it says there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain that said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further. As Jesus tells this one woman that her faith has made her whole, Jairus hears the words, your daughter is dead. No point. No point of troubling the master anymore. I've looked at this story a lot, right? And I've thought a lot about these people that came and delivered the message. And it seems to me they're incredibly callous. I mean, 
coming up to him in the middle of this crowd and, and, and saying, like not pulling him aside, not quiet, not waiting until Jesus is done, but your daughter's dead. Oh, thanks for breaking it easy, right? And then, so stop troubling the master. Here's what I think. I think that the people that were coming to Jairus thought that he was a little bit foolish for going to seek Jesus anyway. That's why their attitude was like, why are you troubling the master anymore? Right? There's no point of this anymore. You just lost your last moments with your daughter. She's dead, and now you've wasted that time. Okay, they seem pretty callous. They're not your daughter. And the first thing that they do after they tell him that news is they kind of tell him that he's foolish for what he's doing at the moment. Seems pretty bad to me. <clears throat> but I thought about him hearing those words, thy daughter is dead. And I thought, what kind of emotions would he feel at that moment? At the moment that he hears, dead. Pain? Anger? Emptiness? Despair? I think he would have had like a tidal wave of emotions that would begin to overcome him. Right? I I can't imagine. He knows this is a possibility. He sees them running up to him. And then he hears those words. But this is what I love about Christ. Before Jairus can even fully process what is said, look what Jesus does. Verse 36. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. So Jesus speaks to this woman, and he overhears what just happened, and he looks at Jairus, and he gets his attention, and he says, Be not afraid. As this tidal wave is sweeping over him, you don't need to be afraid. Just believe. Now, Notice he doesn't say, be not afraid because I'm going to raise her up again. Don't be afraid because these guys don't know what they're talking about. They're just pulling your chain. They're actually, she's actually just taking a nap, right? She's not really, he doesn't say all those things. He doesn't change the circumstance or even make any promises to do so. The only thing he says is be not afraid just believe. In other words, be not afraid. Trust me. You don't need to be afraid. Trust me. What are you you going to do, Jesus? How are you going to fix this? That's what we want to know, right? How are you going to make this all better? That's not what you need to know. You need to know who the person is that just said, be not afraid. It's a funny thing that There's so many people that have all of the fixes for all of our problems. We've got bookstores filled with books that will solve every problem you have. The the problem with all of those books is the name of the author. None None of them have the power to fix anything in your life. And so they can say, don't be afraid because this is what's actually true. This is how wonderful you really are. This is how it's all going to work out in the end, blah, 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 right? Jesus is the only one that can actually say, be not afraid, and he doesn't have to tell you why. All he has to do is say, believe, trust me. And so that's exactly what he does for this man. Be not afraid, only believe. It's like Jairus is running off a cliff, and he nears the edge, and Jesus yells, stop, and look at me. And he looks him in the eye says, trust me. 
reminds me of the disciples. Just in chapter 4, in the boat. Why were you afraid? Well, Jesus, it's clear why we were afraid, because we were sinking, we were dying. Why were you afraid? How is it possible that you have no faith? In other words, you didn't need to know the end of the story. All you need to know was who was in the boat with you. Jesus never downplays the seriousness of the circumstances. He never tries to make him feel better with anything other than himself. So verse 37, And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and he saw the tumult and them that wept and wailed greatly. Again, again, I want you to envision this. I want you to envision Jesus pulling the three guys aside, his, his three kind of core disciples, and he brings them with Jairus, and they arrive at this house. And already at the house, outside of, of Jairus' home, there's a huge group of people gathered. And the people there are wailing. They're weeping. There's kind of a practice within Jewish culture that um, it, was, it was customary to hire people who would weep and wail at a funeral. right? And this was actually not, I don't think it was a terrible practice. Part of the reason that they did that is because they wanted to allow the family to weep and not feel like they're embarrassed. And so they would have professional weepers and mourners that were there that were weeping and wailing so that no attention was drawn to the family because everybody was doing it, right? Um, I think it's healthy to weep and wail. I don't do it very much. Probably should do it more. Um, every once in a while, I catch myself, though, on something strange. Um, we're not going to talk about me anymore. <laughs> That's good. Um, I don't think that they had time to hire these people yet. I think that he had run to Jesus, and Jesus had come to him, and I think that he that he's now back, and the people that are outside the house weeping and wailing are family members that have heard the daughter was sick, our neighbors who know the little girl, maybe friends that she has, maybe family of friends. I think these are people that love this girl and now have gathered outside the house and Jairus has left in the hopes that he would return before she died and fix the whole situation and now he's back and everybody knows it's too late. And so Jairus, Jesus, and James, and Peter, and John walk up together and make their way through the crowd And into this despair and into this hopelessness and this crushing pain, Jesus speaks these words. Verse 39. When he was come in, he said unto them, Why make ye this ado and weep? In other words, what's all the fuss about? Why are you all crying? The damsel is not dead, but sleeps. And they laughed him to scorn. But when he had put them all out, he take the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him and entered in where the damsel was lying. There are so many strange things in those verses. The first thing that's so strange is, what is what's with that question, Jesus? What's the fuss about? 
Why are you all crying? Jesus seems to ask the strangest question. Why would he say that? Why would he say that the damsel was only sleeping? Doesn't that downplay what he's about to do? Wouldn't he want to make the point kind of like he did with Lazarus? No, he's, he's dead and he stinks. Like it's, it's been a long time. Right? Th- that's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is like, why are you guys sad? She's just having a nap. It's all okay. And then it's strange to me that these people who are weeping and mourning so quickly turn from that to laughing and scorning. They laugh and they scorn at him. And this it's not very nice. I feel like if I just lost a daughter or a cousin or a loved one, I might be upset that somebody said something, but I don't know if I'd laugh and scorn them at the time. And yet, these people do. It's also strange to me that Jesus puts them all away. Like, if they're mocking him, and they think that, like, you're crazy, Jesus, you're wrong, she's dead, there's, there's no hope, why would you even say that? Isn't this an opportunity to show all of them who he is? That he's right? That he's capable of bringing her back to life and, and making it so it was like she had a nap? Isn't this a great opportunity for him to witness to them? To show them his glory? And yet, he doesn't. He tells them all to leave. He doesn't use this as an opportunity to convert the doubters. The Bible gives us good reason to believe that Jesus does not desire disciples who are only followers because of what he can do for them in this world. And throughout Jesus' ministry, we see cases of Jesus purposefully healing people when nobody's watching. Purposefully telling people he's healed not to say anything. We're going to see that at the end of the story. Why is that? Well, his time had not yet come, and maybe he didn't want to attract too much attention from the the Pharisees. All, All of those things are true. But I think it was also, he often left massive crowds because the crowds came to him with the wrong heart, with the wrong attitude. And so with all of these doubters, they didn't have any faith in Christ. They they came to him mocking. And he's not one who's going to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to force you to be my follower. Instead, he takes the father and the mother who apparently still had some faith. Right? Jesus had, had turned to Jairus and said, Jairus, don't be afraid, believe. And then he continued with him. So there must be a sense that Jairus trusted Jesus still. And so he came to him in the first place with faith. He still had some measure of faith. And now Jesus is going to confirm that faith. And I really think this is an important lesson on how we should come to Christ. We don't come to Jesus being, prove it. Make it better. Answer this prayer and I'll believe. You know, we don't come with some kind of like, attitude like he has anything to prove to us, we come to Christ in faith. And when we come to Christ in faith, he always proves himself faithful. He never lets us down. He's always trustworthy when we place our trust in him. So verse number 41, it's, the, it's, it's a highlight real verse. Like it's one of those awesome verses. So just be ready. Verse 41. He took the damsel by the hand, and he said to her, Talitha kum, which is, being interpreted, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was the age of twelve years, 
and they were astonished with great astonishment. So Talitha Kum, I guess that's where Talitha gets her name. And Talitha Kum is an Aramaic way of saying, little girl, rise up or wake up. But what I think is interesting is that Mark includes it. Aramaic was the, the common language of the day It's in Palestine. That's, that's what they spoke. Jesus probably spoke most of his messages, most of his teaching in Aramaic. And so for him to say in Aramaic, Talitha Kum, was very normal. There's, there's nothing interesting about it. And yet Peter thought those words were interesting enough to tell them to Mark. And Mark thought they were interesting enough to write them down. So Why? I think it's because it's just beautiful. Because the word Talitha Kum, it's not just like, girl, get up. It's more like, it's more like, sweetheart, it's time to get up. It's this like really common, but cute and beautiful way that maybe you'd imagine a mother waking up a daughter from a nap. Hey, sweetie, it's time to get up. And that's how Jesus says it. And that, this, these words, these Aramaic words made such an impression on Peter and then on Mark that he chose to wrote them, write them down. Because it's just a glimpse into what Jesus was like. Right? He gets on his knees beside the bed of this girl, he holds her hand, and then he says, sweetie, get up. And only Jesus can say words like that and have the girl get up. And so she gets up and she walks around. And then I love this English phrase because it's so bad. They were astonished with a great astonishment. (laughs) That's the mess you had. But how do you describe those emotions? How do you put that, that feeling that you'd have at that moment into words? They were astonished with a great astonishment. (laughs) Oh, it's so weak, but... It's true. That's, that's, I mean, they were amazed. They were in awe. They were like, who is this guy who speaks to a dead girl? And she gets up. And it's Jesus. He is the guy. Verse 43. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it. And he commanded that something should be given to her to eat. Jesus is like, Jesus is just as, Cool as a cucumber. He says, everybody, everybody's like, their jaws on the floor, they're weeping, they're rejoicing, and she's like, she's probably hungry. You should get her, you should get her something to eat. Like, I don't why did he say that? I don't, maybe it's because um, he wanted to show that she really was alive, right? This wasn't a spirit, this wasn't something weird. She was, maybe it's because she hadn't eaten in weeks because she's been so sick, and he knew she'd be hungry. And not only is he concerned about her coming back to life, but he's also concerned that she's hungry and she wants, he wants her to have some food. I, I don't know. I think it's just another really beautiful um, view into who Jesus was and what he was like. You know, she's hungry. Get her something to eat. It's pretty. It's cute. It's beautiful. That's what our Savior's like. And so as we look at this story, there are many truths that we can be found. Um, there are many truths, I think, that, that when we look at these three miracles together that teach us. So what I want to do is I want to just make two statements and then each statement will be followed by a question. The first one is this. The statement is, we are all 
in desperate need of Jesus. And I believe these stories are used to illustrate the different needs that people have, right? Because they're very different. But in every case, with all of these people, we see that they are in desperate need of Jesus. If there was a story in the Bible about your life, the first thing that we should notice, if it's going to be a good story, is that you're in desperate need of Jesus. That's how we have to come to him. And so the first question I had was, well, who are you in Mark chapter 5? Which character do you associate yourself with? You have the first guy, the, the Gentile man who is possessed by a legion of demons. Right? His story is that he had a whole group of demons inside of him, and everybody in the town had done everything that they possibly could to try and help him. When they couldn't help him, nothing would work, They tried to lock him up with chains so at least they could control him. There's no help and there's not even the ability to control him. He breaks the chains. And so this man's situation is that he's been left outside of the whole world to go live among the graves in the mountains. I mean, like completely helpless. But when we look at this man from a Jew's perspective, he's the epitome of evil. He's Gentile. He's possessed with a legion of demons. There's nothing good about this guy. And I wonder if you might associate yourself with him. Maybe you have had a really rough life. Maybe you've done some really awful things. Maybe when people look at you and look at your life, they'd be like, there's no hope for someone like that. They're so evil. I wonder if you would identify with someone like that. Then you have the second girl, the second person, and and it's this woman. And she's Jewish, so she's got some religion. She's got some of the right thing. But for at least the last 12 years, she's been unclean. And she also has been an outcast in society. She, she knows enough about God, but she can't go to the synagogue and worship. She hasn't been learning the Bible. And she's kind of got to the point where she, the people she loved have moved on. She's, she's lost everything. All of her money, everything's gone. So she's the, the kind of person you might say, they've got some religion. It's not done them no good. Now they're impure. Now they're unclean. Do you see yourself in the woman? She was in desperate need of Christ. And then you have this man. This man is the one that, on the outside, doesn't apparently need Jesus. He is upstanding citizen. He is one of the rulers of the synagogue. Everybody else looks to him and thinks he's a godly man. He's great. He's got it all figured out. He doesn't need Jesus. Do you see yourself in that guy? Because the truth is about this man, when it came to it, he really did need Jesus. I mean, there was no hope in the situation he was in for his daughter without Christ. I gotta be honest, when I look at my story and these three in front of me, I think I can identify with him. I think that I grew up in a good family. I went to Catholic Church every Sunday. I mean, without fail, was an altar boy. Uh, compared to my friends, I was better. I wasn't good, I was bad. But I was still a lot better than most people that I hung around with. And so, what do I need Jesus for? And it terrifies me to think that if I wasn't prayed for, people didn't invite me out to church, if, if I didn't go to a youth group, if I didn't go to a Christian camp, if, I didn't, if God didn't put all of those things in my life, all those opportunities to hear the gospel, so that 
that time and time again, people could beat into me how much I desperately needed Christ, that I could have gone through my life being the religious guy who's better than most people, middle class, doing all right, and never seen my desperate need for Christ. And so, I can identify with him. What, what I want to make clear is he is no more or less in need of Jesus than the woman or the demon-possessed guy. They were all in desperate need of Christ. And so who are you? Have you recognized your need of Christ? Do you know how much you need him? See, all of these circumstances deal somewhat with life today. And it is kind of something that we're preoccupied with because we are living today. We have this life in front of us, and so those are the things that we touch and see and experience all the time, and it's really hard to get beyond what's going to happen between now and next Sunday, or between now and next year, or whatever. Like, we're here, and so all of these are illustrations of our desperate need spiritually on a physical level. But a billion years from now, do you think the... The religious man needed Jesus more, or the evil, demon-possessed guy, or the woman with the issue of blood? Who do you think needed Jesus more if they look back a billion years years from now? I mean, nobody's trying to make a case for any of them, right? It's ridiculous to think that. Like, the destiny of our eternal soul is more important than being unclean for a lifetime or being demon-possessed, or even losing a daughter. All of those things are are small in comparison to an eternal soul. And so we are very focused on today, and it's really hard not to be because that's what's in front of us. But if we could stop for a second and just see that our desperate need goes beyond just our our physical circumstances today, but but it's about a spiritual soul that lives forever, our eternal soul, that we really will spend eternity in one of two places, and that without Christ, we will spend an eternity separated from God in hell, then we begin to see the desperate, desperate situation that we're actually in. That's what we need to see. And so, do you see yourself as someone in a desperate, hopeless, helpless situation without Christ? You need to. And if you're a believer... You need to praise the Lord all the time for that. Okay, Don't get beyond being desperate and needing Christ. The second statement is this. Jesus is trustworthy. Jesus is trustworthy. Might go without saying, but he is. And so the question is, can you and do you look to him in the worst of circumstances and still believe? And this this is a question I think that that a believer should try and answer. Can you and do you look to him when your circumstances are the worst and still not fear because you believe? He reminded the disciples in the boat of their lack of faith. Now this man is facing the nightmare every father prays to avoid. And Jesus says, don't fear, but believe. It almost seems silly 
trying to tell a group of people that in their worst circumstance, they don't need to be afraid. Like, like preaching this, almost it sounds weird. Hey, you're in a completely desperate situation. You've just lost or are losing a, a loved one, a spouse, a daughter, but you, you cannot fear in that situation. You can still trust him. That almost seems crazy to say. And it is absurd if Jesus is not who he says he is. There's not enough weight in a, a magical belief of Jesus that's not really real to help you in your worst times. Do you know what I mean? Like, some people will say, well, Christianity is great because it, it, you know, it helps you. It helps you feel good about yourself. It gives you maybe some purpose in your life. And it's, it's someplace to lean on when things get hard. Yeah, okay. But when you're in the very worst circumstance in your life, you don't need a delusion that's going to help you feel a little bit better because that's not going to be enough. In that circumstance, the only thing that can really help, the only thing that's not absurd to lead on is a living Savior who's with you still today, who intercedes for you at the throne of grace. One that you can go to and talk to, one that helps you carry your burdens, one that, one that is your good shepherd that walks you through the valley of the shadow of death. That's the only thing that can help. And so I know it sounds almost crazy, but if Jesus is who he says he is, then looking at this guy after his daughter's dead and saying, don't fear, does make sense. Because he is trustworthy. There are so many examples of this throughout the Bible of, of godly men and women who trusted God through difficult times. There's also examples of people who didn't. I thought of uh, Horatio Spafford, the writer of It is, is Well With My Soul. And you know the story that he wrote those words, It is Well With My Soul. Just a song that talks about the worst trials we go through and still being able to trust God for them. He, he wrote that after losing his daughters um, in a, they drowned at sea, and he, he wrote them kind of on the trip back, and he had already lost everything in a fire. And, and so he's, he's a guy who's an example of having lost everything and still able to say, it is well with my soul. Why? Because he knew Christ, and Jesus is trustworthy. Do you notice in this story that all of the doubters missed out? I mean, they laughed at him, they mocked him, he said, go, okay, that's great, you can go. You're not going to be a part of this. You don't get to, to see this happen. You don't get to, to see my glory. You think of the townspeople of the town of Gadara. They came out and they saw this miracle of this man who'd been freed of the bondage he was in. And rather than running and falling at the feet of Christ and asking for that kind of freedom, they told Jesus he had to leave, they experienced nothing good. There's no help. It, it, Jesus is not a helper of all people, just magically. But he never turned away anyone who came to him in faith. And so tonight, do you look to him in your worst circumstance and still believe and still have faith? Do you see that you have a desperate need for Christ? The wonderful thing about Christianity, about the Bible, about Jesus, is that until he comes again, the invitation to come to him is always open. That means it's open tonight. So if you know you're in desperate need, 
whether you're saved or not saved, come to Christ. If you want help, you want to talk to somebody, you should talk to somebody. You should talk to pastor, talk to myself, talk to, there's many godly men and women in our church. They'd, they'd love to show you how Christ is trustworthy. All right? This is a great story. It's a story that reminds us of how glorious Christ is, of the beauty of his character, and that we can trust him in our worst times in our lives. Let's pray.